0: Welcome to the Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast. This week, Chris Tracy is in a conversation with author Paul Willett about the role that local archives play in his writing.
1: to uh, this afternoon's Heritage Hour. Uh, it's a bit different, this one. This is sort of a, a bit of an experiment. Hopefully it will go well, I'm sure it will. Um, we're doing this, as you can see, a bit of a sort of in-conversation-with kind of format today. Absolutely delighted um, to welcome Paul Willits, um, author and journalist and uh, bon vivre, perhaps. Um, and uh, we're going to discuss, um, talk about a few of his books and also sort of generally sort of think about um, the role archives and re- research have played in, in the writing of Paul's book. So that's kind of uh, the drift. Just a couple of things before we sort of um, kick off properly. Um, should there be a, a, a bell go off, signali- signalling a fire alarm, um, don't panic. Uh, we'll all just file out in an orderly fashion of that door there. Um And uh, just to let you know, a couple of other things that are coming up as well, should you be interested. Um, On Saturday the 25th of November, so next Saturday, we've got this event up here in this very room, New Impressions, which is uh, an opportunity to get very close and and hands-on with some of the wonderful Renaissance books that we have in our store. Um, There's been this project involving the UEA where a load of graphic designers have been inspired by some of the books that we have. And have sort of done their own thing with them, and, and sort of um, uh, created some artworks and, and print and that kind of thing. So yeah, twenty fifth, just drop in between ten thirty and four thirty, and then following that on next month on Tuesday the twelfth of December at one o'clock, um, we've got a talk in here. Um, our colleague um, Dr Re- uh, Rebecca McGann will be talking on the Norwich Apocalypse, which is one of the very rare uh, medieval medieval manuscripts that we hold in our store. So. Okay, as I say, absolutely delighted to welcome Paul um, with us. Thanks for thanks for coming, Paul. It was a pleasure. Um, and um, I thought we'd um, we'd kick off with um, uh, just kind of sort of going back to when you began writing. Your first book appeared in two thousand and three, yeah. I believe it was, it was. I
2: suppose I had it. I don't know whether it's uh, a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, in a way, you know, you look back on whatever what line of work you're doing you can look back on it and see it can seem like destiny, <laughs> you know, uh, when actually it's just a series of chance occurrences and I sort of went, fo- I'd wanted to, to write fiction initially and so I followed quite a ragged path into print, I'd been writing short stories and, and they, I hadn't really been getting anywhere with them and I think I would fo- really, I suppose I had a fundamental uh, Mis- ended up with a fundamental kind of misconception about writing where I was getting so intent on the surface of trying to write these such well-turned, fizzy sentences that I was beginning to lose sight of the fact that they need to be about something. <laughs> right. you know, it kind of helps. And, and in a way, getting into non-fiction was, was very a, a, a good way of sort of treatment for that kind of approach right, and right. because the non-fiction needs to be about something, and you need to tell a, a story as as muscular a narrative as possible. I, I drifted into writing nonfiction really through being a fanboy, I suppose, of, there was a, a guy who, just by chance, I became really passionate about this really neglected 1940s, or he's predominantly associated with the 40s, 50s, guy called Julian McLaren Ross, who was a sort of Soho Dandy and yet yeah, bon viveur and fantastic writer. He was once a, he was really the rising star of the, the wartime literary scene and right. he was admired by John Bechman, he was in war, Grand Greene, he was Graham Green ran a publishing company called Aaron Spottiswood at that point. And um, McLaren Ross wrote in this very modern kind of conversational style the first story I ever came across of his I just it was in an anthology it was a, a 40's era um, collection called The Saturday Book that used to have it ran for about 20 years I think it would have short stories, poems, photos. It was a lovely sort of compendium, very odd sort of rag, rag And there was a McLaren Ross story in a very early edition of the Saturday book and it began with, began with this really snappy beginning. He was pro- initially a short story writer and it began something like you know, the, you know the Scotsman off Soho Square, that's where I met her, you know, wedged <laughs> up against the bar or something and then you sort of away in this story Fantastic. and it just felt very, very modern, not, I mean not that I felt that 1940s writing would necessarily be distant in style mm. but it's felt incredibly contemporary. Why is no one... Why is this guy totally obscure other than as a sort of footnote as this colourful solo character and I started wanting to find out more about it and at, soon afterwards there was a Penguin released a collection of his writing he'd written some unpublished memoirs or, or uh, uncompleted rather memoirs that were published posthumously called Memoirs of the Forties and they were edited by the editor of a lit- literary magazine that ran through from I think it started late 50s and ran through till quite recently called the London magazine. It was run by a poet and travel writer and cricket writer, Clarence Ross, and he put together for Penguin in about, we're talking about 1986, something like that, he put together uh, uh, Memoirs of the Forties, which had come out in 1964, just after McClaren Ross's death, and he added some short stories to this little paperback edition, and there was a, it was a, it was interesting, actually. It was a lesson in um, what obituary writing can be like because he, he, Alan Ross wrote this seemingly fond obituary-style introduction to, about his friendship with this boozy guy. And, um, and actually, when I contacted Alan Ross, I said, well, I loved your introduction. It's very affectionate and warm. I'm sure you've got other stories to tell. And, uh, and I, I'm thinking about writing a biography. And at that stage I had nothing published. I wasn't a journalist or anything. It was just a fan and I wanted to know more about this guy and felt that I wanted to evangelise about him. And Alan Ross wrote back a really curt postcard saying, oh this bloke, real bore, you don't want to write about him. I thought, <laughs> ah, oh, uh, yeah maybe you write. I won't write about him. So you, several years went by, and, and the sort of sting contained in that little card had kind of faded, and I was get, again getting nowhere with other writing, fiction writing. And I suddenly thought, well, maybe this is for me. I'll have a go. Let's not, don't be silly, don't be so easily put off. And, and he wrote this. Started researching and started interviewing, and I was sort of, I suppose, in retrospect, I was drawn to this so predominantly Soho story about this guy who's photographed looking mean and moody, who <laughs> was once described as a cross between, it's a sort of nineteen forties gangster and Oscar Wilde, <laughs> not that he was gay, quite the opposite, but rampantly heterosexual. But I think I was drawn to to him because I'd had a lot, a lot of Soho connections, with family connections, my granddad used to supply fish to all the restaurants around there, he was a sort of Billingsgate guy and my parents were heavily sort of so, people, my dad worked as a waiter in a club and my mum was very involved in the sort of uh, cafe or coffee bar scene of the early fifties and I used to be taken around in the sort of late sixties, early seventies constantly Around all those places, so I suppose I was drawn to, to it for that reason. Anyway, sorry. I'm no, sorry. not at all. Uh,
1: um, it's just interesting what you say about you know um, uh, McLaren Ross's um, laconic sort of clipped style, yes. as you say, very modern, fresh, but mm. also of course wonderfully of its time as well. in yeah, in, the, yeah. in terms of the things it describes, yeah. and you yes. know, the wonderfully red- redolent of that era of you know. Lions coffee yeah. houses, and yeah. um, I think I can't remember the exact quote, but um, I think DJ Taylor did the foreword to the yeah, of Love so and yeah. Hunger. Yeah, which and he, is the best he, he put something about um, being uh, you know that world of, of uh, the love nest over the tobacconist <laughs> shop or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> and, it's and, glamorous, um, isn't it? and I think it, it's, it's very I don't know if you saw there was a thing in the paper this week about um, how um, words like rather quite they yeah, used to pepper English. English well they're just they're, they're disappearing yeah. yeah they're disappearing from yeah. conversation now and I don't know if yeah. that's to do with the, you know text speak yeah. or what have you but no it's 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 you know yeah absolutely wonderful writer um, you move you still sort of stayed with, with Soho and, and, and that kind of thing for your next book, y- which yeah. also has sort of contemporary sort of uh, relevance to a certain extent. As yeah, well.
2: I was kind of, because I never really set out to be a biographer and had this, the book about McLaren Ross, though it was published by, us, it, it was slightly desperate, just backtracking slightly, looking for a publisher. And I, I was naive, although I'd got one, tight, one literary connection through my then brother in law, who's this elderly poet, but poets know nothing about, really, about. The, the the literary world that's involved with cash and agents <laughs> it's just foreign. A few of them do, but generally, you know, that was that was just so he, he was able to introduce me to a lot of his sort of boozy old poets of right, uh, right. Vernon Scandal and people like that who were still like John Heath Stubbs and a lot of these sort of 40s poets who were still just about alive. Uh, I'm mean, going to treasure the memory actually of turning up with a tried to persuade, or persuaded a filmmaker to shoot some documentary footage about Julian McLaren Rice, And um, I remember turning up with him to John Heath Stubbs, this blind 1940s poet's house in, uh, God, it was Artesian Road in Ladbroke Grove. And uh, he was the only man in the street who'd got a neighbourhood watch sticker on his window. <laughs> <laughs> it's just totally ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, but, but, yeah, the, the um... Uh, yeah, I, I had difficulty finding a publisher for it. It kept it, it had that frustrating thing of agents, you know, quite fancy agents would come back saying, "Yeah, we like it. We'll negotiate for you, but we, you know, there's not enough money in it mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to take it on as you know, our project." And so you were getting just enough encouragement and then enough discouragement <laughs> to, to create this kind of tortuous tension. Um, but finally, it, it it came out through a series of lucky connections really, and uh, made quite an impression. And then I I thought, I got a lot of publicity really, I mean it's about the subject matter more than the book probably, but I was looking around for something, having not wanted to write biographies, particularly other than this guy's biography, and was looking around for a subject that would could be non-fiction but n- very novelistic and would have a strong narrative. And I think going, getting on to the archival element of mm. these things, there's a lot of historical non-fiction about crime, true crime, that isn't necessarily, you associate true crime with something very tawdry but I mean increasingly that isn't, isn't necessarily the case, he mm. says very defensively. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I think there's a lot of true, historical true crime because there's archival material and, and it's the something that's documented from the moment the crime happens and then there's the backstory and the hunt for the whatever the um, the criminals have done mm-hmm. and so you're able to construct these sort of novelistic narratives mm-hmm. and it kind of goes in and out of vogue unfortunately I'd hit a period when it wasn't, as a genre it wasn't particularly mm-hmm. vogue and uh, but I, I tried to take archival material. I'd, I'd wanted, I got really interested in, after the McLaren Ross book came out, I was very interested in um, the idea of doing some crime fiction. And I I'd identified a period, the post-war 40s, as something that hadn't, at this stage hadn't been covered, which would have been about 2000 and... Four, and there was nothing else about the British post-war forties. There was no crime fiction about it. So this would be a fantastic idea to construct Mm. a crime series. And was talking. I by then had acquired a proper agent, and I was talking to them about it. And it all seemed. relatively straightforward in a way, and uh, I did a lot of research, and then got completely obsessed by, I was reading a lot of these police memoirs, and I was delving around in the National Archives, looking at police files, and got so obsessed by one particular case, and I found that I was writing this fiction, and it was sort of okay, but I just thought, actually, this, is, this doesn't really have the power of
0: the reality of this
2: case that kept kind of nagging at me. And then I start, started thinking, I wonder if it'd be possible to recast this case in the form of a police procedural, which hadn't been a really straightforward, very kind of tight police procedural, a sort that hadn't actually been done. So I thought, at that stage, and... Um, because it was a long while before the, t- uh, what's his name, the Mr. Witcher, the Suspicions of mm-hmm. Mr. Witcher, and um, which got a lot, rather frustratingly for me, got a lot of praise for doing exactly that <laughs> rather later. Um, and so I was sort of working out a way of trying to use the, that sort of form and Feed the real material into it. And the real material was about something that was also interesting to me because it had a contemporary resonance, particularly in around 2003 2004, because there was masses of coverage about teenage gun crime at that moment. It was just endless stuff in the way that when the newspapers and the, the broadcast media cotton on to something, they'll see things which. Wouldn't go reported normally, and then it becomes some more coherent whole. And the, the story I found was nineteen forty seven, and it was about the teenage crime wave, and it was a <coughs> gang related wave of massive amount of gun crime, um, which a lot of the time, once you start delving around in historical things, you, you you start to realize how nothing's really new. you know people aren't fundamentally different, obviously the costumes change, but the technology changes, but not a lot else. And th- this particular story was was about, I mean it was an extraordinary story. it was the, the very first time forensic science had really been applied to a police investigation, and it was an incident. it had one of the things that, that I like about. Or the sort of raw material I'm often attracted to, seems to fit into that kind of, it's, it's just too strange, if you had it in, in fiction, you'd think this is preposterous. And it's the, the, this particular investigation began uh, in April 1947, and it was, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Charlotte Street in what was then North Soho but it's, it tends to be known as Fitzrovia now, lots of restaurants, parallel to Tottenham Court Road in London. And um, walking north up Charlotte Street from the Oxford Street direction that day was this guy in his, I think he was sort of early middle age at that stage, I can't quite remember. Anyway, he's walking on his way up to a well-known pub, the Fitzroy Tavern. Which was a fascinating mixing place for showbiz people, their arts people. At that very period, Robert Kappa, the photographer, was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman, the actress. They were meeting in the Fitzroy Tavern, there'd be police, all sorts of people were meeting there. And Dylan Thomas at one point had used it a lot. And this guy was on his way, who I won't name he was on his way up to the Fitzroy town to see the landlord and landlady who were his friends. And as he approaches the crossroads with, the name of the street escapes me, Anyway, the, he's approaching this very small crossroads and he sees there's a huddle of people gathered round, someone lying on the pavement and there's a motorbike tipped on the pavement or near to the pavement and he looks across, thinks there's been a traffic accident, thinks no, well he, he thinks he can't help, there are enough people there tending to the injured man, so he might as well just be on his way. So he goes up to the pub, has his drink, and then he goes off to, the reason for him hurrying is he's got to catch a plane to Germany, 1947 and this happens to be Albert Pierpoint the famous hangman and he's on his way to hang some Nazi war criminals (laughs) just a sort of average charming day in the life of Albert Pierpoint and um, the person who he'd seen lying on the floor wasn't the victim, or on the pavement, wasn't the victim of a traffic accident. He was a man called Alec D'Antiquis, who was an Italian garage owner who was repairing motorbikes. And he was cycling up the same direction a few minutes earlier, up Charlotte Street. And just as he reaches this crossroads where his bike is later found lying, there's a group of these kids, including a 17-year-old. The three kids, the youngest. I think the oldest was about 21. The youngest was 17, 16, 17. They're running towards the crossroads with masks on, and this Alec Guinness on his bike intercepts them. Intercepts one of them, blocks his path, and this is 2:30 in the afternoon. The boy pulls out a revolver and shoots him in the head just executes him in the middle of a crowded street and, and they run off and um, that is then the beginning of of this incredible investigation by Robert Fabian, the inspector from the murder squad at Scotland Yard who becomes known as Fabian of the Yard later and it spawns the Blue Lamp the Bogart Dirk Bogard movie which is inspired by it and even has a little nod there's a sort of uh, co- um, montage rather of, of photos at the beginning and one of them is the photo Alec Dianiquis lying on the floor and the, the blue lamp has lots and lots of little hom- knots in homage to this case which is a, an amazing forensic investigation which leads leads Fabian into this world of, of spivs and teenage gangs, mm-hmm. and the statistics are incredible you know, the, the number of people, number of kids Between the ages of about 11 and 18, there were far more kids who were convicted members of criminal gangs than there are now. Was it
1: it, (coughs) 10,000 I read yesterday while I was searching for that? It was Was something... like convicted criminals in gangs? Yeah, it was something like that in a
2: a geographically and demographically far smaller London than now. You think, that's extraordinary. And the police did a one-day gun amnesty. That this figure sticks in my head. I, I, thanks for prompting yeah, me about the ten thousand. I can remember that. But the yeah, that one day I think it was something like two hundred and fifty thousand rounds of ammunition were handed in. A lot of automatic weapons. It was, it was thousands of weapons anyway in just a single day in London. Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of war related. Yeah. So it was a fascinating story to delve round in, and archivally the stuff came from the National Archives, which are I don't know how many of you have delved round in the National Archives, they're wonderful and very accessible Mm -hmm. and exciting in a way. I was talking to Chris when we were having a drink on another occasion, how... how oddly exciting archival work can be. Is outside at all this archives?
0: God
2: dull. You know, quite the opposite. Yeah, well, yeah, yes.
0: And then I realised,
2: God, this is exciting. You know, they just to have this direct connection yeah. with history and with the National Archives, you get a bit like those old cafeterias where the plastic lids lift it, you need lift them up and help yourself to a dinner or something. The National Archives, you get a number and then they're numbered boxes and suddenly your thing has appeared and it's a pile of documents. You just lift it up, take it out and think, I wonder what's in there. And it could be a box with, you know, often I've had well-knowners doing this true crime thing. You, you open it up and you find sort of bits of... Well, it's all very fringe evidence crime scene photos. And often people will be sort of peering over your shoulder, <laughs> so fascinated by it.
1: Was there quite a few sort of living sort of people who involved investigation that you spoke yeah, to, to? Yeah, yeah. There,
2: there well? were there were a few peripheral people. I couldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't track down any. i I spoke to police policemen who were involved in. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy who worked, was very helpful. He was an ex Spitfire pilot. So he'd led an extraordinary life and had been in Stalag Luft Three and then was in the police just afterwards, mm, right, just right. after the war. And um, and he was very helpful about procedural stuff, which right, was right. which was hard to find. Really, mm, mm. Um,
1: but I, from what I've read, you, the more fertile in that respect was with regard to the to the uh, Paul Raymond. Book yeah. Final. Yeah,
2: I mean so I sort of went on to I'd done this book again for this rather small publisher. Yes, i I'd, I'd been with this small publisher for, for the, the true crime book, which because I I timed it badly that it hadn't wasn't very fashionable at that time anyway. But North, then North
1: Soho nine yes nine it's nine. called North
2: Soho 999 nine, which, nine, nine, yeah. which was a sort of homage to to cool Northfield seven 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 and these sort of film noirs and using these phone numbers and I just wanted something that that was sort of Film noir, really, because it's a very sort of noir story. Um, but um, I was looking around for something else to do, and by that stage, I'd, I'd sort of upgraded in terms of agents, and and the agent I'd moved to, he was sort of saying to me he said to me, ah, what are your thoughts about Paul Raymond, Paul Raymond being the strip show, and Paul Barron, property guy, who was a theatre magnus as well, and I just remembered him as a, when I was a kid in the 70s, I just remember him as this sort of tabloid creature with some kind of blonde, busty blonde on his arm, and, and it was kind of tatty and not really, it wasn't really of massive interest, although uh, you know, it's a 15, 16 year old, obviously. what well, his products were, <laughs> I have to admit. But, um, uh, yeah, his, my agent said, said, What are you interested in? You know, you're interested in Paul Raymond. What about. And he, I, he didn't really say, Do you, you interest in writing a book about him? I sort of guessed that was probably what it was about. And did some token research because in order to get books commissioned you have to create these book proposals which are in, in essence they're kind of business plans in a way about the, how, what, what the story is like and how much appeal you can see within it and so on and uh, I started doing this preliminary research thinking oh well I'll just satisfy the album you know at least be able to with some honesty say I've looked into it but I'm not really that interested and uh, actually I was sort of really fascinated I didn't realise that poor Raymond came out of the world of the sort of fag end of British Variety Theatre and, and all that, which just, I found really interesting what I read about it. I mean I knew a little bit about it to start with, and so I actually thought, yeah I'll commit to writing a book proposal, and then it got commissioned, and it was a first sort of entree, it was really the entree into things on a sort of, books on a bigger scale really, and mm. um and it was I couldn't get, I was in touch with Paul Roman's family, but at that stage I'd written, I was writing literary journalism, not sort of foot in the door type of journalism. So I hadn't got that determination to keep on chasing the family and seeing if I can get some response from them. In fact, I was writing to them and just stuff just wasn't getting through to them, I later had. They'd have cooperated, which was a bit frustrating. Um, but uh, I started uh, casting my net round as widely as possible and was interviewing people when, it, when the book got commissioned. But where Chris was intimating in your question, I had a very interesting archival experience with it. Very odd. I hadn't expected Paul Raymond to, to leave behind much of an archival trail. But I started finding stuff in odd places. I found some stuff in the... There was some stuff in the National Archives. There was also stuff in the British Library, which was rather ridiculous where I found myself there was rare Paul Roman had this sort of early strip show um, club called the Roman Review Bart going but there was at that time incredibly chic and you get American movie stars going there in nineteen fifty-eight when it opened. And Hard to imagine because I remember being taken by and walking by the random Review Bar in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, or throughout the seventies. And by then it was pretty tatty, and certainly in the seventies. But um, anyway, the, the, in the British Library they had um, they had these rare programmes. From the review bar, and I was sent to the rare books section of the British Library and given white gloves. Yeah. And there was some guy you know, on, on these little foam things to support books. There was a man reading sort of Shakespeare folio, and he was sort of casting this, actually I suspect envious eyes. I was looking at this sort of sixties tat with these showgirls, um, but uh, but the the, the archival experience was that. I got a tip off from, I made a contact through North Sahar 909, the true crime book, with uh, an archivist at Scotland Yard, and he said, I was in touch with him, knowing that Paul Raymond would have had dealings with the police, really because the police were, Raymond was part of that kind of pushing, part of the rise of the so-called permissive society and sort of pushing at the boundaries of what was acceptable. Uh, just continually, I think it was just a challenge. Oh, I know it was a challenge to him, and as uh, soon as the police would block him for often silly reasons, and in the early days, it was all very, you know, by contemporary standards, the whole thing was sort of charmingly innocent of these sort of Folly bergere type, or not even that, chorus lines. But I knew he would had dealings with the police, so I contacted, I spoke to this archivist, and he said it. Have you thought about why not, or not? Have you thought about? It? He said, "Request this file. <laughs> Request this file through Freedom of Information." And I had this peculiar experience where I suddenly got this. I think it was a phone call from from the, the Met saying, um, "Come to such and such an address. We'll let you see the files for an hour." And. I mean, I've talked to people about freedom of information since. They've sort of never heard of anything as weird as that. So I show up at this high-security outpost somewhere in Chiswick, I think it was, and uh, and I happen to have interviewed someone before, so I'd had my little tape machine with me, and I, just in the rare, not normally very good at sort of thinking on the spot, in this just suddenly moment of inspiration, said to the the policewoman who was showing me through, "Is it all right if I take my?" Because I think I was searched as well, and I was told I wouldn't, couldn't photograph anything, which is fair enough. But uh, I said, Well, could I take the tape machine in? <clears throat> Any problem about that? Nobody has asked us that.
0: <laughs> so this is it.
2: <laughs> fine, I think. So I went in, and, and there was a huge file, and I started just dictating. I thought, This is going to be the quickest way. I'll just speak as, as fast as I possibly can, read it and got through the whole thing just in time. And there was someone, I was sitting at a desk and there was someone just watching me throughout to make sure I didn't steal anything or photograph it. And it was was ridiculous really. And and soon afterwards, well maybe about a year later, just before the book that this formed part of came out, uh, it was released into the National Archives. So it was a ridiculous <laughs> palaver. And I mean, it was all sort of. It, it, I mean, it was a fact it was a, it, the, the archival material actually kind of occupied this area that I would like within non fiction. It was both deeply sinister and kind of creepy, but at the same time, there was something very funny about what it, it, it was about. Does um, that relate to the extract? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll read it Yeah, yeah, I'll read when we were discussing this i was just looking for some extracts beforehand just very short extracts now this extract is is I mean, it might be useful to you if any of you are wanting to write fiction historically based fiction because it, it gives an indication i think of of just how how much drama is lurking in those archives that can be mined and this is about, I'll just set the scene a little, it's from 1972, the extract, is, as I say, is very brief, It's from December 1971, rather, and the files, were, the files that I viewed were about this peculiar incident when Paul Raymond was being threatened by the RA. He was getting these phone calls, initially it was his wife, He was a very sweet woman, Jean. Jean was getting these calls saying, um, we we want money. In effect, this Irish voice was saying, uh, "We're from the Repo- Irish Republican Army's collection department, or some you know some division, you know, and we will you know you've seen our work before, and <laughs> very sinister, and um, you know you if you do not pay, we will be trouble." And she was getting; she had things like they cut the brakes on her sports car and. And she was getting these nocturnal phone calls at home and at work, and it was building up. And um, and then Paul Raymond, the bit I'm going to read, he's at the review bar. Is it? Is it? Yeah, he's at the review bar. So it's, and this is this is completely factual. And until Monday the sixth of December, nineteen seventy-one, Raymond received no more calls from the man with the Irish accent. At 1.30pm that day, Raymond answered the phone and heard the familiar voice say, This is your executioner speaking. I wish I could do the Irish accent. No, we add to. The man introduced himself as Mr Mesh. Did you get our message? We will require £15,000 for our funds. This is no idle threat. We mean business. Raymond lied to the man, claiming that the message hadn't reached him. Under the pretext that he needed to fetch a pencil and paper, he put the receiver down and used another phone to ring the police and try to get the call traced. Mr. Mesh had, however, hung up before that could be accomplished. Over the following weekend, Raymond was twice informed that a Mr. Wilson had phoned him but left no message. (coughs) Seeing as he had no social or business connection with anyone of that name, he assumed the calls were connected to the extortion plot. Just after lunch on Tuesday the 14th of December he answered the third call from Mr Wilson who turned out to share Mr Mesh's voice This is your executioner speaking the caller said to Raymond you did not do as we told you we mean business you will have until Friday to make up your mind it's not your wife and children we're after it's you we will do the Whitehall Theatre, which poor Raymond owned, unless you place the notice in the London Evening News before Friday. Raymond asked what the advert should say. Happy birthday, Jean and Ray. Then the man added, I will contact you again, giving you instructions. Taking the advice of the police, Raymond placed the required advert in the next two days edition of the editions even of the evening news. At 2.25pm that Thursday, an anonymous man phoned Raymond at the Whitehall Theatre, but Raymond wasn't around. The man told Raymond's secretary that he was calling from Ireland. He also said he'd try again later, yet the call never came through. Five days before Christmas, Raymond received a mid-afternoon call from Mr. Mesh, alias Mr. Wilson, whose latest redundant alias was Mr. Jackson. You will not be hearing from me anymore, the man said. It's now in the hands of the collectors who will be contacting you. Do not try any funny stuff. Remember Andre Mizalis, the Mayfair hairdresser He didn't pay. They phoned you from Ireland last week to contact you, but you weren't in. The owner of the chain of, uh, the owner of a chain of salons. Mzealus had been found shot, dead, at the wheel of his car, two bullets in the back of his head, but the killers had never been caught. Following the police instructions, Raymond agreed to pay whatever the IRA wanted. It's now out of my hands, the man told him. You'll be hearing from the collector. On that ominous note, the caller put the phone down and it was just so creepy but it heads off in a very unexpected direction which is one of the delights of uh, these sort of stories
1: It wasn't the IRA It wasn't the the IRA It
2: was a painter and decorator (laughs) from from the suburbs There's a glorious moment when the collection team go in and this young guy turns up who actually? Who was? I think. Well, he must have been a little simple, and he'd answered an ad, a job advert from the guy who was masterminding this scheme, saying, "Painter and decorator's an apprentice or helper needed." So this guy gets involved with the man who, who plans this blackmail plot, ropes him in, and the young guy turns up at the Whitehall Theatre, which at that stage was a very popular theatre, showing pyjama tops, which was this hit, sort of carry-on, tatty kind of sex comedy with Fiona Richmond, the then girlfriend and then huge British sex symbol. It was a massive West End hit at the time. This guy turns up in the foyer of the Whitehall Theatre to collect the money. The police have these conversations have come through phone taps, the ones in that extract. And the police have got all the phones tapped, they're waiting, loads of them. And they say they have equipped Paul Raymond with a suitcase full of dummy money, just like a movie with you know real money at the top and newspapers at the rest. And um, he takes this suitcase down, the young guy is down in the foyer waiting for him. And the young guy says to him, and this is one of these things where you just think this, is, this, is, this would be totally unbelievable in a novel or a movie. The young guy sort of leans across to him and says, Mr Raymond, sort of quite deferentially, no sign of an Irish accent, which is the first kind of giveaway. Mr Raymond, oh, could I have two tickets for pyjama tops for myself and my girlfriend
1: for Wednesday night? <laughs> 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 there goes a real criminal mastermind. <laughs> um, the Members Only book... Um, <clears throat> linked in in kind of nicely to a certain degree with the experiences of McLaren Ross in terms of that was your sort of entree to the sort of dealing with film people and. Yeah, it was. It was uh, and, and what have you. I, I don't know if you'd want to say a little bit yeah, about yeah, sort of of your experiences, which haven't always been perhaps <laughs> as, <laughs> yeah. as, as ideal as you might
2: I don't think, think I'm the only writer no. that's uh, had, had problems uh, w- but with film people. But when the, the book came, when, when the book was in sort of manuscripts and it was circulating, he, a couple of people were interested in making a film out of it, turning it into a film. And one of them was, was the then sort of pretty trendy director, Michael Winterbottom, who done it, he's got a very odd sort of filmography, and he was wanting to do something with Steve Coogan, who's his great mate. And the other guy was a guy who'd made Calendar Girls, very sweet, elderly, who was a producer, ex BBC guy called Nick Barton, I think his name was I always would really to call him Dick Barton after the TV <laughs> detective of yesteryear. And uh, yeah, Nick Barton couldn't ra- he couldn't raise the money to because the movies require British movies at least (coughs) require a certain amount of money to fund the creation of a script and then the script will go out and they'll try and raise the money to actually make a film out of it and Nick Barton couldn't raise the money whereas Michael Winterbottom could but Nick Barton went off and since he couldn't make a film about the pornographer, Paul Raymond he thinks, ah yes, Swallows and Amazons which I think (laughs) he did much better with it was a very good idea and uh, yeah, which... uh, I, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So it's a very odd. It was sort of an odd experience being involved with this film. So I ended up being a consultant on it and uh, saw the whole thing evolve over quite a period. And it's peculiar going back to the archival element. Mm. Well, you think back. I mean, these things are so incremental anyway. Books are very incremental. You know, if any of you want to write, I think you know. Just really, one of the things that needs to be borne in mind is just just the sense that they just it, it really just accumulates so slowly. And the books you might you might read some book and think, oh God, my first draft is in comparison to this this is so fantastically finished but actually the mm. book that you're comparing your first draft with has gone through 99 mm. f- rounds of editing and mm. all sorts of things like that and, and has, has evolved over a long period and um, with mov- movies it's just the same so that one day you're having coffee with someone and then sort of six months later or one day you're sitting in an archive reading about this stuff and then trying to work out a way of Bringing this archival material to life, and then six months later, as I was, I found myself sitting in this huge <laughs> film set, mm. a reproduction of the Raymond Review bar, where they had a bar that was serving booze, and it was sort of you know people from that that what someone whittly, Jonathan Mead wittily called the skin industry, <laughs> someone from from that world had said, ah oh, yeah you 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 become quickly become oblivious to this. I guess, I mean, my parents were always involved in art school teaching and people would always, there'd be a kind of nudge-nudgeness about life modelling. and. Actually, that's the same thing. You, you, I mean, the same in the sense that he'd become completely blasé, yeah. that kind of nudist. But I found myself, as I was sitting in this fake review bar, you could see, actually, how blasé you could become. Because I'd be chatting, and, you know, suddenly chatting to the choreographer, and she'd have to adjust someone's nipple tassel. or <laughs> <laughs> we just, I just, oh, yeah, right, okay. You know, and then back to our much more interesting conversation. And it was, it was very, actually, you must say, because it was was sort of funny how accelerated the thing was because obviously British, British movies, even though this was an enormously expensive British movie of the time, I think it was £14 million, pounds. Uh, but even so, they didn't have a massive amount of time to do stuff, so I remember going to the review bar on one particular day, and it went through the entire life of the review bar in a day's shooting, so we started off and there would be really elegant couples and cigarette girls and... With the trays and fantastic outfits weaving through this elegant nineteen fifties crowd at, at sort of ten o'clock in the morning, and by about four o'clock that afternoon, they'd gone through to filming the sort of tatty nineteen eighties where there were sort of two Japanese tourists. <laughs>
1: um, it's interesting listening to you talk about the um, the way a project evolves and the way you get you, you know you must get completely consumed by yeah, yeah. you know the, the, these these people these projects. But I understand that the next Project that you did, which which was mm-hmm. 2015, which mm-hmm. was the the rendezvous at the Russian Tea Rooms, mm-hmm. that had had a very long gestation. Yeah, it is, I mean these things
2: can. There are all sorts of things that can knock you off course, and increasingly. Publishers, the publisher of Rendezvous, at the Russian tea rooms that I've since left, um, they were saying to me uh, when I was trying to get another book commissioned, that saying, "Oh, you could, there's no messing about anymore. You've got to do this in a year." You think this is ridiculous? Mm. You can't research these things and write something to any with any level of qu- whatever you feel is is decent enough quality mm. in that period. You need a minimum of two years for these projects, and if you're say if you're doing uh, another job, which I'm—I've been fortunate enough not to be need to do through just raising good enough advances. Um, if you're doing something else, it's, you need three, four years really. Mm. Um, and you, so, yeah, and rendezvous seem like—it's a bit of a lesson. You can get very excited about these projects where things seem to be just meshing, and you. I, I've often heard people talk, football managers say, talking about, or football players say, talking about how uh, they've learnt not to get too high in the great periods so that they're not too low in the, the bad times. And I, I think that's it's, it's very good advice because I can remember points at the, in the evolution of this particular book, which was, in a sense, it was an espionage procedural, again, non fiction, um, when it, everything just seemed to be going fantastically well, only for. With books, you just need there are so many interconnected things for for a book to actually succeed or to work well on its own, whatever its own level is. You just need one element to to not really work, mm. and the whole thing just falls apart. Mm. I suppose it's similar to movies. Yes, and mm. uh, yeah, so, um, the publicity and. Uh, marketing was just non-existent with mean, a share but uh, but
1: it was it was quite a tale wasn't it i mean it yeah, yeah. yeah it was was one of these things
2: where the yeah i mean the story was an extraordinary story It was something that had been done before or touched on before but not in the way i'd done it and I, and in the time since it was about 20 years earlier when someone had written about this story and it was heavily archival but i did find people to interview there was a there was a hundred year old Russian guy who was living in Chiswick who only died fairly recently, who was immensely useful, who knew some of the people involved and he had, I mean he was, he he was, it was a lesson in not taking preconceptions about the the extremely elderly into interviews because he was so fantastically sharp and on the ball and when I thought he was digressing say no 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 this is important background material yet he was so, what was a bit like when you're handling archival material and there's that great tangible connection with the past he was that in human form, because as he put it, he said, I'm so old, I'm sure he'd used this line before, he said, I'm so old I go from Rasputin to Putin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <was rather> good. <laughs> and <laughs> the Rasputin element was, he said he was a wealthy guy, or he'd been a wealthy guy in Russia, and the parents had escaped the Russian Revolution, um, so he'd ended up in London, stripped of most of the wealth, but he, he re- recalled as a really tiny kid, being taken round by his nurse in St. Petersburg and one day he said, this is extraordinary to think I was talking to him maybe about four years ago about this, he said, I remember being, yeah, a a carriage pulled up near, nurse and I were walking through St. Petersburg and a guy got out of the carriage and I pointed at the nurse and said, who's that, you know, who's that nurse? She said, that's Rasputin. (laughs) (laughs) Extraordinary. (laughs) Um, But the, the story itself was Sorry, I digress. The story itself was, was about three people, and again, I was sort of pushing towards the novelistic, wondering how you can, if you can create something deeply buried in history that remains solidly factual with no novelistic embellishment, or the embellishments are purely based on research. Uh, if you can do that around this story, which is about three three very odd people, and I sort of like the idea of intercutting in a very cinematic way between, or what aimed to be cinematic, between these three people. And it was a very odd collision of these people and I think this is a sort of lesson that you can take out of well you can take into other projects about how something that's, I and mean, this is it was familiar to specialists in this area but you could make it slightly unfamiliar by combining multiple people and looking at the, the world through which they moved. And the multiple people were... One of them was uh, a white Russian fashion designer, fantastically successful, well, very successful, fantastically would be exaggerated. She was a very successful haute couture fashion designer called Anna Volkoff, Volkov, who styled herself Anna de Volkov. and she used to make clothes for Wallace Simpson, and they were extraordinary sort of deco era, outfits and she she was uh, for reasons you could really understand she was drawn to fascism because her family had been dispossessed by the Russian revolution and at that stage there was that, you know, the communists were, were behind the Comintern that was trying to spread world revolution and she drifted towards fascism and was getting involved with a lot of these pre-war British fascist groups which weren't always uh, um, just as a Footnote: They weren't always what you'd understand by fascism now. The sort of early fascism, but um, the the other people involved in this story were she gets when the war starts. Well, sooner it, the the story is focused on the phony war period, which I thought was an interesting underexplored period before anything much had happened, and she her sort of story inter- intersects with that of. Um, a guy who kept being cited as a sort of early as a precursor of both Julian Assange and Edward Snowden, Wrong, completely wrongly, the newspapers kept comparing him throughout. Well, in the last sort of uh, many years, the Assange and Snowden stories have been running, and um, this guy was called Tyler Kent, America, who worked. He was transferred from the American embassy, this code room. Uh, in Moscow to the American Embassy's code room in England, in London. And at that stage, all the American traffic, cipher and code traffic, was being funneled through London and across the Transatlantic Cable. And everything back and forth was going through there. And he ended up seeing everything, but he was also stealing everything. He stole all the communication, and he found that there was a top secret communication between Roosevelt and Churchill at a st- stage when Roosevelt was coming out with speeches about your boys will not be a risk in, in, in a European war when the isolationist feelings were very strong in America in the, the late 30s and 1940. And Roosevelt was saying this at the same time he was talking to Churchill. They were exchanging telegrams about manoeuvring America into the war. Uh, so this was an explosive series of correspondence that Tyler Kent had, and Tyler Kent was actually a, a com- he was an NKVD, which was the um, Russian um, secret police or s- spy network. Um, he was an agent for the NKVD. Uh, and he was posing as a fascist, and he gets involved with Anna Volkov and these crazy fascist groups like the Nordic League, and there was sort of there was a slightly comic elements. <laughs> the Nordic League used to write it; they used to meet at the society. There's always been a strong kind of new age green connection with fascism. I mean, as there is now, but seldom talked about, and. Um, yeah, the Nordic League used to meet at the Society of Druids, <laughs> HQ, and like something, I don't know how many of you have seen Spinal Tap, but they'd, they'd have these vitriolic speeches even delivered from this stage with, with a papier-mâché model of Stonehenge behind them. <laughs> that was <laughs> so about the only laugh I got out of the story. But, uh, and the, the, these two are being end up being hunted by the third person in the story, a guy called Maxwell Knight, who was a British counter <coughs> espionage specialist for MI5 who was deeply <coughs> eccentric, which made him even more attractive. He was obsessed by animals and later became a, a, a children's natural history broadcaster on the radio, quite famous as Uncle Max. Not, um, not Uncle Mac who was, fam- was more famous, <coughs> but Uncle Max. And he wrote loads of books later in life, and people were oblivious to his career as a spy hunter. But he, at this point, he was keeping things like he had a pet bear that he'd take throughout—a bear cub, rather—and he'd take the bear cub for a walk around Chelsea. And people, women, would come up to him and say, "Oh, what a sweet little chow puppy!" <laughs> he play along with this.
1: Fantastic. Um, I don't know if you, you if you want to to read the the, the extract from uh, Rendezvous Paul, but I believe you sort of. You've said to me before that you feel that this sort of demonstrates the sort of yeah, the way that novelistic, I that mean, sort I of cinematic so. sort of tendency. I yeah. hope
2: so. I mean, one of the things I was always keen uh, with non fiction was to, to, that seemed, I mean, particularly in biographies, biographies often seem to be. Kind of denuded of the detail about the the world through which the person moves, you know, whatever kind of biography it is, w- whether it's a pop biography or whatever. Uh, and I was very keen to sort of get a sense of. Of just the visuals of what this world feels like, what it smells like, and it, it always struck me a bit it's a bit like you know, a portrait painter doing a portrait. That the portrait a good portrait painter will always do a portrait with the person surrounded by their things in a way that so there's a sort of dialogue between the person and the background. And, and I always wanted to do that with nonfiction, probably more so with with these now what the publishers call narrative non-fiction like the spy story and the true crime. I'm doing one for American Penguin Random House at the moment about an imposter, a sort of jazz age story. I'm very keen to to sort of have use these stories as a kind of lens for seeing something much wider Mm. just the way the world subtly changed and with rendezvous with the Russian Tea Rooms I just wanted to actually get a a kind of week by week, day by day sense of just how like London was militarised and just so you've got a feeling that as a reader you're you're seeing this city change and um, you're not sure of the outcome I was very keen not to not to have that sort of sense that everything's predestined, mm. you know, to get this feeling that things are up for grabs. Mm. So. <coughs> Ex- would you like
1: to read the extracts? Or yeah, or yeah some, yes, yeah? of course. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah.
2: It, again, it's a very, very small one because I always find myself as a punter at a literary events to attend. My tension <laughs> so <laughs> I shouldn't say this with these are long extracts, but I'll just give you an example of. And this why I chose it actually was uh, I. Been teaching. I taught, I mean, for the first time, taught a course a little while ago, and was was keen to sort of show people how you can use. I mean, this particular passage, a very small passage, it's archival material, and I was trying to without try, without um, because obviously I could, it's about Anna Volkov, this fashion designer. It's 1940, and she's on her way to the War Office to meet someone. For an, she's been summoned for an interview at the war office in Whitehall. And uh, I wanted to sort of uh, show the people I was teaching how it was possible, not that I was holding this up as, as, as the best way of doing it, but just as an idea, to give them ideas about how you could, you could add a sense of point of view for a person within non-fiction where you don't necessarily have them. Sometimes you will have a point of view, sometimes you'll have a diary extract where they say that they Know, this woman hated someone, or you know, whatever. You know, some relationship had ended badly, and you have that internal access. But I, I wanted to, knowing the point of, that this was a woman who was interested in fashion, I was c- using digital archives where you can narrow down and say, I want to search for clothes this week in London. What's around? What's on the streets this week? and so I was feeding in this sort of information, the sort of thing she might notice and was doing that with other people. Anyway, and, and everything is archival down to the weather. So we've got dull, drizzly conditions prevailed on the afternoon of Anna's meeting at the War Office. Trafalgar Square, already disfigured by long, windowless red brick air raid shelters, cheap by jowl with the boarded-up fountains, never looked at its most appealing on days like that. In abrupt contrast to the weather, with the cheerful spring fashions lately adorning the streets, women had taken to wearing real snowdrops, daffodils or other flowers around the brims of those little straw hats that were all the rage. Brightly coloured frocks, gloves and shoes had become fashionable too. On either side of the broad expanse of Whitehall were the immense edifices that housed the main government departments. Their ground-floor windows screened by sandbags, their aura of secrecy and gravitas enhanced by a thicket of radio masks. Anna soon entered the war office a smoke-tarnished, skull-capped Edwardian citadel. It had cavernous, mosaic-floored inter- a cavernous mosaic-floored interior and a domed stairwell punctuated by classical columns. Distinguishing the styles of these had been among Anna's few strengths as an architecture student. She was, before long, face to face with Sir Vernon Kell, whose health had evidently deteriorated since she'd met him at Lord Cottenham's Dolphin Square flat. Today they were joined by a man of around her age. He was introduced as Captain King from the War Office. The man who just greeted Anna Volkov was not an army officer, nor did he work for the War Office, as he liked to pretend, nor was his surname King. though he often used that alias. His real name was Maxwell Knight. We're into into yeah. um, But uh, yeah, the more I've been immersed in this kind of thing, it's, you sort of you you realise there are ways you can perhaps try and convey period flavour by trying to exclude. You could have actually enter in solely into the language of the period, mm. which could obviously become problematic in certain areas. Yeah, I'm you, very keen to kind of exclude modern metaphors and to try and maybe use. Metaphors that are appropriate to the people who are being depicted.
1: It's <laughs> that detail, isn't it? The detail upon detail upon detail.
2: I think, yeah. It's, I mean, sometimes you make you know it's a matter of taste. Sometimes readers can feel buried by yeah. detail, but I think you. I mean, you can go too far, but mm, I think yeah. detail can you know, from my from my <laughs> own point of view, it just it brings things to life, and often in <clears> the detail you find things that are that actually. Uh, jar with your preconception of the period. So, for instance, with this one, at one point I've got this MI5 document from the National Archives about uh, the watches, the MI5 surveillance teams watching some of these fascists, predominantly women, and weirdly there's a whole collection of a lot of the suffragettes, or collections of suffragettes, moved from campaigning for votes for women to campaigning for votes for no one, and they moved straight across to fascism. <laughs> weirdly, you never could quite work that one out. And uh, there was a women's air force and sort of paramilitary outfit run by the crazy Commandant Mary Allen, who'd been a leading suffragette, and um, Actually, rather amusingly, I saw there was a castle exhibition in the castle that touched on social history, and there was a photograph, and underneath is a sober caption about women moving into the workplace, joining the police. And I was looking at this thing. That's not the police. Yeah. This is this paramilitary <laughs> fascist group. <laughs> oh,
1: well. I, I think we could listen to you for well, hours and hours, Paul. But I we are No, <laughs> not at all. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, I think. If anyone would like to ask any questions, this is a good point to. to
0: yeah, do absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was just struck when you were talking about McLaren Ross. That huh? couldn't be more than three weeks ago. I discovered uh, Patrick Hamilton. Oh, great, great boy, writer. He gaslight a role. Yeah, yeah. But they said, he was a good novelist. Yeah, and just. I yeah. books from the library, and, and his biography came first before. Oh, it's Jones. Yeah in a case where you discover all about the man and it yeah. sort of whets your appetite <laughs> Yes, Yes, it does. The puzzle, I was waiting for Hangover Square and Slaves of Solitude and I watched, I guess, the original Gaslight, which is mm. better than the remake, mm. and then Hangover Square, which was kind of diluted. I don't know if you've ever seen the film, but it was... I, I've never actually seen it? Yeah, God, and originally it was filmed, yeah. And, and I mean, the book acts more of a punch. I, mm. I haven't read your book, I'm looking forward to it, but it's sort of the same thing sometimes the film adaptions. I look at YouTube. Clip of uh, Stephen Coogan. Yeah, it's, it's even Coogan struck me, but as plausible as yeah. sort of the uh, two guys from Spandau the Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, as <laughs> the, the, the craze <laughs> Yes, uh, do right yeah, yeah I do. Yes. Uh, but actually, thinking Patrick Hamilton, the, there was a very good adaptation, and uh, there's a BBC Four one of Slaves of Solitude. Not slaves of solitude. No, sorry, no, of, yeah, uh, Twenty Thousand Streets. Yes, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, it was one of those rare ones where you know often in period movies a drama you get that. Oh, it's set in 1935. We get high style, everything is the best, yeah. and it's all from 1935 rather than this weird. You know, the, if we look around our homes, there's a strange accretion of Victorian, Edwardian, some yes, new yeah. things. <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, that's right. I don't know if you saw one on Sunday with was it Ian What was it? Yes, was how it's ended. Working. and it looked amazing. I mean, it was all yeah. this. Yeah. What, it was that, yeah, yeah, I mean, they did sort of grey street and then have someone's yeah. red hat coming yeah. out. But you did think, as yeah. you say, that yeah. couldn't, couldn't have been so 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 perfectly sort of yeah. realised at the time. Yes, it's a sort of couture vision of the past. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, any other questions at all? Mm. No. So you 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 write nonfiction in a. Yes, it's yes. confusing. Have you ever taken that step from taking something from the archives
2: and creating a fictional characters? Well, I'm I, I exactly. tempted, and I've always had this. I'm not really very good at, uh, at sort of splitting my attention, so that I've I've often in the past sort of thought, oh, well, in the evenings, or maybe two or three evenings a week, I'll start writing a novel at the same time, and I've various things that have come kind of on my mind about to do that with, but somehow I find that. With nonfiction, it's just like Chris says, it's so becomes so all-consuming, and you also get pressures of, sort of with deadlines. But you, it, there is something very addictive that is, you know, the addiction spreads to other forms of archival research, and you just start wanting to spend more and more of your free time to the point where, you know, whoever your other half is, then starts must feel, oh God, they're living with whoever you've brought in <laughs> you know, which n- isn't necessarily a good thing
1: <laughs> not, not with some of the people you've written about Yeah, they tend to be <laughs> quite <laughs> seedy
2: and I tend to be a, a disappointment to <laughs> <for> people <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: That's fantastic um, Unless anyone else has got anything to, to say I'd just like to say thank you very much Paul That was thank really, you. really fascinating And um, well, Thanks for coming Yeah, Thanks for coming, coming on <laughs>